Okay, Book of Tov. I don't know why I always start. Book of Tov. Book of Tov. Book of Tov. Book of Tov. It's been a She's long while. Exactly. Okay, we continue our weekly dose of coffee and jolt of emuna, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which was in the middle of this piece by Rav Shlomo Volba Zatzal. Rav Volba in his Ali Shore, again Rav Volba, the great Mashkiach of Yerushalayim, who really inspired a generation to work on these aspects, personal character growth. You know, so, uh, so traditionally in yeshivas, the emphasis was Gemara study, Gemara, 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 Halacha, 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 and the assumption was that character development, personal growth, would result simply from engaging in the high-level study. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter already instilled that tradition, which has now permeated and penetrated all of our yeshivas and seminaries, that it's not enough I shouldn't say it's not enough, that we are not at the level that the pure study of Torah has the impact, the transformative impact on us, that we need to engage character development directly as a subject, as a curriculum, and to deal with it. And that's really what Rav Yisrael Salanta, the founder of the Muslim movement, um, really, um, really contributed. And so Rav Shlomo Volba is one of the links in the chain of that Muslim movement, who has his own fascinating background. We just concluded the people of the book last night, but maybe for next year we should do an entire... Uh, Series on M- on Musser. Put that there. Mm-hmm. And Revolba would be a great uh, Revolba would be a great one. So here Revolba is talking about Emuna and Yira. Just to summarize what we talked about last week, and then we will continue. He noted we say every day in Davening. This comes from the story of the narrative of the Jewish people when we left Egypt, and the Egyptians pursued us. They were behind us. The sea was in front of us. We were trapped with no way out. We had given up hope, and the Kodesh Baruch God created this unbelievable miracle. He split the sea. We'd given up all hope. He thought it the impossible. And suddenly, there was a path. It's a beautiful, beautiful image for our own lives where we sometimes feel trapped. We can't imagine any way out, whether it's a failing marriage or disappointments in our children or a lack of a parnasa or hope to have a child or a sense of loss that we're going through. Whatever the case may be, we can feel absolutely trapped as if there's no way out. And somehow God performs a miracle tantamount to the splitting of the sea, all of a sudden there's a clear path that we never imagined. You wake up one day, you know when you have the flu, you know when you're sick, you have the cold, and you think like, this is it, the rest of my life, I can't breathe, I can't feel, I'm miserable, and all of a sudden you have that day, you wake up and you say, ah, I feel a little better. It's like that breakthrough day where you say, I've turned the corner, I'm feeling better. That's God opening the path. And He does so in many different ways. So anyway, when the Jewish people experience this, the Torah describes, Parshat Peshalach, and the Jewish people saw the great, the strong, the mighty hand of God, what He had done. They feared, they had awe, they had reverence for God. And then they had faith in Him. And Revolb is bothered. What do you mean? They feared Hashem, then they had faith. Doesn't it work the opposite? It's counterintuitive. First you believe in God, and then you can have awe and reverence and fear of Him. But what do you mean you fear Him and then only then do you believe Him? Don't you have to believe Him as a precursor, as a prerequisite to fearing Him? And he answers, no. He says, and he quotes from the Sefer, the, the, the Rebbe of Ozrov, Eshtas, and he says, no. First you have to understand who God is before you can have Amuna. You see, an Amuna Pshuta, to say, yeah, there's a God who created the world, but not really know Him and not really have a relationship with Him and not really feel Him in your life, that you can have without awe. But we spoke about last week, and I don't want to uh, repeat entirely, th- the concept of awe. We've lost that concept of awe. To us, everything's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Everything's awesome. And we're so great that nothing impresses us. 
Right? We are the generation of eh. The generation of eh. 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 It's okay. We should be blown away by things. Be blown away by Steph Curry. That guy's unbelievable. Anyone other than Shani know what I'm talking about? They're blown away. There are things happening in our... In our there are amazing views and experiences and, and things that happen that should blow us away. That we shouldn't say, eh? But we should say, truly, that's awesome. That's awesome. To feel awe, you have to be humble. If you think you are great, if you think you are so high and mighty, if you think you are so powerful, so all-knowing, then nothing's going to impress you. And in fact, arrogant people struggle with awe. Arrogant people struggle with gratitude, but arrogant people struggle with awe. Because that painting? Eh, I could do that. That sculpture? Eh, I've seen better. This restaurant? Eh, food was okay. That co- the speaker? Eh, I could have given that speech. If you think you're all that, nothing in the world impresses you. Everything is... Uh, eh, there's no room for awe. So to make room for God in your life, you have to be humble. Because even God's things, the Grand Canyon, eh, I could have done it better. That sunrise, that cloud, if it were moved over a drop, the sunrise would have been improved. Oh, that coincidence, I would have orchestrated it differently. If you think you're so great, you don't even see God. So the prerequisite to seeing God in your life is the humility of saying, I am categorically different than God. He is infinite, I'm finite. He's omnipotent, I'm limited. He's all-knowing, and I know nothing. I am pathetic. Not that it's healthy to think of yourself entirely as pathetic, but at times it's good to think of yourself as as pathetic. So that's what Revolba essentially answers, is that Yira, to feel awe of God, wow, he's the creator, he's engaged in my life, he's the guiding hand in my life, he's awesome, his world is awesome, the things he does, his value system, his nature, it's awesome. I feel so small, I feel so tiny next to when I think and contemplate about God. And only once I reach that realization, now I'm ready for Amuna. Now that I understand who God is and who I am in contrast, now I'm ready for a relationship. Now I'm ready to feel Him in my life. Now I'm ready to lean on Him and to have a relationship with Him. Racheli, come pull up a chair. So the, uh, we continue. And that's what the Rambam, when the Rambam went through... Yeah. When the Rambam... That's pretty much how it usually goes. When the Rambam, when the Rambam goes through the mitzvah of Emuna, the Rambam counts three... Um, components of Emunah. That's this paragraph in the middle of the page. The Raman counts three components of Emunah. The first is which is to believe the concept of God, that there's a first cause. Right? The first stage of Emunah is to know that the world did not come to be by accident. The world does not exist by chance. The world might be the result of a Big Bang. Right? Quote to Dr. Joe Schroeder, it could be, but God is the source, the originator. God pressed that button that launched the Big Bang. So the first level of Amuna is to know that um, the first level of Amuna is to know that there is a God and He created the world. And I don't want to spend the time now to bring all the pieces of evidence of God's existence. I would argue, and I have argued in the past, that Judaism does not assert that you can prove God's existence. But nor does Judaism assert that you can prove anything. Can you say that again? Judaism does not assert that you can prove God's existence. What Judaism believes is that there's overwhelming evidence of God's existence. And here's the key point. There is the same amount of evidence for God's existence as there is for most other, almost any other thing that we do. Many of you are drinking coffee that I brought this morning in a box from Dunkin' Donuts. I didn't purchase it. I carried it from the office where Linda had purchased it. So why are you drinking that coffee? How do you know there's no poison in it? 
How do you know that the Dunkin' Donuts people didn't poison it? How do you know ISIS didn't penetrate Dunkin' Donuts? I'm going to scare you all now, but how do you know ISIS didn't penetrate Dunkin' Donuts and to decide they're going to take down the women? They're going to take down the women of Boca Raton by targeting our Dunkin' Donuts at Munashir. They're going to poison the coffee, or that Yocheved or I poisoned the coffee, or that no one did it intentionally, but there's a contaminant in the Dunkin' Donuts water system, and that you're all about to get the Zika virus. And uh, who knows? How do you know that? How do you know that? The answer is you don't have proof. You have a lot of evidence. There is quality control. There's no reason to believe that could happen, that would happen. You have overwhelming evidence. How do you, believe, how do you know when you cross the street and you think you look both ways that there wasn't an optical illusion or that your brain didn't play a trick on you and you're about to get run over by a car? Why were you willing to cross the road? How do you know? And I would say that if not 99, 100% of your decisions you will make today or you've made already, you did not make with absolute proof. You made with overwhelming evidence. And that same level of overwhelming evidence exists for the knowledge of God. And Judaism asserts that it's not faith in God. It's not the word we use. We talk about knowledge. God says, know today that I'm here. You have been shown to know that there is a God. You can know about God like you know about the other things in your life. You just have to be willing to examine the evidence. And you have to be willing to examine the evidence without a bias, without preconceived notions, without already having reached a conclusion. Clean the slate, come blank, examine the evidence, and Judaism asserts with confidence that you will conclude he exists. But doesn't Judaism also assert that when it gets to a point that you can't understand, then there's something called blind faith? Yes. Where you kind of have to just... Well, the difference between the overwhelming evidence and taking that leap is where the faith comes in. But you take that leap when you drink the coffee, when you cross the street, when you take the medicine, when you drive the car. You're taking that leap all the time. Our whole lives are built around taking little leaps of faith in people that we absolutely submit ourselves to circumstances which could end our life. So, you know, somebody who didn't ever drink coffee from somewhere, didn't eat anything they didn't produce, we'd call them neurotic. We would call them, you know, that person has mental health issues. They're OCD. So, in other words, to be healthy is to take leaps of faith. Leaps of faith that you can drink the coffee, that you can cross the street, that you can drive the car, that you can trust. How do you know at every light that you're at, when it turns green for you, that there's not a malfunction, it's not still green the other way? And that you're not about to get into a life-ending accident? How do you know? Again, I'm not trying to make a group of neurotic people here. Although I'm doing a good job. How do you know? How do you, I'm just thinking about all these right now. No, they don't bother me. I'm talking to a guy who jumped out of a plane. So these things don't bother me. But how do you know? The point I'm trying to make is we take leaps of faith all day long. And the same leap of faith we take in the functionality of the traffic light and in the quality control of the coffee and in everything we're doing is the leap of faith that we can take to come to that conclusion that God exists. Now, it's by design that there's no absolute proof. It needs to be that way. And again, this was not for now, but maybe we'll just end up talking about it. It's by design. Why does it have to be that there's no absolute proof? Because many of us say, why can't God just talk to me? He spoke to Moshe and Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov. And why can't I just have proof? I'm living this limbo. I'm hedging my bets, so I'm living this observant life. But I really have so much doubt. I have so much uncertainty. I don't know, and I'm inclined to believe God doesn't exist. I don't see him in my life. He's disappointed me. Why can't God just talk to me? Why can't there be a proof? If I had a proof, fine, I'm on board. I'll do what it takes. Why can't there be a proof? And the answer is very simple. 
there is no absolute proof that God exists because then it wouldn't be very much, it wouldn't really be impressive that you jumped on board, would it? It would mean nothing that you came on board once you knew with absolute certainty and there was a proof that God exists. In other words, what gives life meaning is free will. That's what gives life meaning. That we have the choice to believe or not to believe, to do or not to do, to observe or not to observe, to keep or not to keep, to be faithful or unfaithful. That every moment of every day we have choices is what makes us human and not robots or animals. It's what animates our lives. It gives life meaning and purpose. It's free will. The relationships we have are influenced by the choices we make. Make good choices yields fantastic and pleasurable and fulfilling results. Make poor choices and suffer the consequences. At work, at home, in our personal life, with what we eat or how we work out, with every area of life, the choices we make create the results. There are results that are beyond our choices. Our choices can't always influence. I I understand the details, but I'm saying generically that we have free will and the free will is what gives meaning and purpose to our lives and influences the results and the circumstances and the consequences that we live. If God would reveal himself with absolute proof to the world, then there's, there's no point to life. You've lost your free will. There's absolutely no point to living. So in order to, for life to be meaningful, in order for there to be a purpose to our lives, God has to hide. God hides. That's the whole story of Purim that we're about to approach. Maybe we'll talk about it the closer we get to Purim. Purim is God being hidden in the story. God's name does not appear in the Megillah. If the atheist or agnostic wants to read the Megillah and say... Eh, eh, all right, it happened, all right, it happened. All right, so, just happened, and he fell on the couch, eh, eh, okay, coincidence, chance. That's the challenge of Purim, is that there is an illusion. It's easy if you want to write God out of the Megillah. God's name doesn't appear. If you want to read the Megillah and say, God, this has nothing to do with God. This was a historical event, a narrative. It's a nice story. It unfolded this way. Lots of stories could unfold this way. Then not only can you, you're invited to. God's name doesn't even appear in the Megillah. So what's our goal on Purim? What's the name of the Megillah? Megillah? Esther. The root of the word Megillah is to be Megaleh. What does Megaleh mean? To reveal. Esther comes from Nister, which means hidden. 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 Purim is all about an exercise in Megillah's Esther, being Megala the Nister, revealing that which is hidden. The whole challenge of Purim is read the Megillah and you write God's name in. You fill in where you see it wasn't chance and it wasn't coincidence and it was God. So God is hidden in our lives as he was in Shushan. That's Megillah's Esther my whole life and I've never heard okay. anyone say that Megala and Esther you should listen to the rabbi maybe we'll study as we get closer to the Purim we can talk more about Purim I'm just giving that as an example what? not necessarily this is the one where the theme of the Megillah is that God's name does not appear no no that's the theme of the Megillah is that God's name does not appear and our exercise on Purim night. By the way, that's why the whole theme of Purim is dressing up. The whole idea is that which is hidden and that which is revealed. The whole essence of Purim is to acknowledge that the world is an illusion. Right? That everything looks one way, but there's really something behind it. God. Right? I never make references to pop culture, but I will make an exception. What's the movie I'm talking about? The Matrix. Is that the call? Is that what it's called? The movie? The Matrix? Okay. So remember the, anyone here see the movie The Matrix? No, yeah. It's yeah. an old movie. Yeah, an old the whole movie. theme of the movie The Matrix is that the world is a matrix. It's an illusion 
And there's a real world happening behind it, and the people living in the illusion like the think they're in reality, but the reality is an illusion, and the real reality is, that's us, we're living in this illusory world where we think we're in control, and we think we call the shots, and we think what you see is what you get, and we think we understand everything, and therefore, what do we do on Purim? We acknowledge and recognize it's all an illusion, and we buy into the real reality. That a world without God's name is an illusion. It's not chance. It's not nature. It's not happenstance. It's God. And how do we exhibit that? We dress up so that we show the difference between that which is hidden and that which is revealed. You may not like this, but some suggest we get a little inebriated because when you're a little drunk, you don't even think that you can understand things. You submit. You concede that you don't understand anything. And really, what we're saying is, even when we're sober, we're drunk. Even the whole year long, we think we know why things happen the way they happen. We think we understand the world. We think that we can predict and anticipate and manipulate and control the world. We never can. It's not us. So that's a little bit about, about Purim. So again, coming back full circle. So the Ramam says the first component of Amuna is to know God exists. There is a first cause. And that's not a hard leap to make. I'll give you just one example, one piece of that evidence. The third law of... of um, Thermodynamics is called entropy. It means the nature, order goes to disorder. In the natural world, order goes to disorder. So if you leave something alone, the molecules dissipate. You leave something alone, you get decay. You leave your coffee alone long enough, it's going to cool off. You leave your bread, it's going to mold. Order goes to disorder. When the natural thing is for order to go to disorder. Naturally, we age. It's the natural, it's the, natural uh, the way things work. Whenever you see disorder go to order, you know that there's something supernatural. I don't mean God, but I mean somebody else controlling nature. So, for example, if you look at a painting, you look at, at, at a building, if you look at words on a piece of paper, and you say, wow, that's disorder going to order. Somebody took ink and organized it into words. Somebody t- took paint and put it into an image. Somebody took materials and built a building. Disorder turns to order. What do you know? That it wasn't natural. That somebody interceded, somebody intervened. And that's the way we live our lives. If I would have said to you, you know, it's amazing. What we're going to study today, this isn't Revolbi. Somebody knocked over a bottle of ink. And look what happened. Mm-hmm. And let's read it because it's full of brilliance. You'd walk right out of this room and you'd say, this guy's a moron. I'm not going to his class anymore. <laughs> if I told you that this building, would you believe there was a pile of wood and a hurricane, a tornado came, and it blew all the wood, and it, it landed, and uh, now you've got Fredo's house on the corner. You'd say, that's crazy. <laughs> Obviously, there's workers there every day, there's blueprints, they're taking the materials, and they're building. Whenever you see disorder go to order, you know that there is somebody interceding. It's true with clothing, and a watch, and light. It's true in every area. So, what are you going to tell me? That the world, which is the greatest act of disorder turning to order, do you know the intricacies and the details for the human body to function, for the human being to live. I'm not going to say Asher yet to relax. Do you know the details and the intricacies to build a building, to write words on a paper? So there's not an intervening being? That's a simple piece of evidence for God's existence. Just apply what we know in every other area of life to the question of does God exist? Of course He exists. This isn't all by accident or chance. It couldn't be. Every time we see disorder go to order, there's somebody, there's a being. And the same is here true. So the Rambam says that the first stage of Amuna is to know that there's a creator. But the problem with that level of Amuna alone is that you might conclude, okay, 
there's a painter to the painting, and there's an author to the words, and there's an architect to the building, but I don't know who they are, and they don't have a relationship with me, and they don't affect my life at all. So maybe God created this world, this universe, and maybe He moved on. He brought disorder to order, He created a world, nice project, way to go God, impressive, wherever you are, and maybe He moved on. How do I know that He's involved in my life? So that's the next level, mitzvah beis. He didn't create a world that move on, that everything that exists is an expression of God. Everything that exists is God, the unity of God's existence. And then the third level, to know, well, if God created a universe and He's involved in my life, He probably has some expectations of me. I probably have some accountability towards Him. If God created me, and God is involved in my life, and responsible for all the blessing I have, then I probably have some responsibility to Him. That's the third level of Amuna. Is what Amuna means applied. What Amuna means practically for my life. So what you see again, what Revolve is trying to show again from the Rambam here is, that one of the aspects, one of the levels, one of the components of Amuna that the Rambam talks about is Yira Upachad. Is to realize that, wow, if God exists, and if He's involved in my life, and He loves me, and He's so good to me, then I, I owe Him. Then, then there are expectations He has of me. There are consequences. There are, I'm accountable. And if I don't do the right thing, and I don't show up, then there's consequences. There's consequences to everything in life. I think that's our primary responsibility as parents. And I think it's the number one way that parents are falling short. Our responsibility as parents is to teach our children there are consequences in life. And every time we bail them out, and every time we protect them from a skim knee, and every time we give them a participation trophy, then we are denying them the lesson that life is trying to teach them, that there are consequences. And I think that's a terrible mistake. We're raising a generation of, of and we will see, we will see the consequences of our own mistakes in how we're raising them. That's our responsibility. And God is our parent and He has consequences of us, of our ignoring our mission, our mandate, our purpose in existence. So the whole point that Revolve is trying to make, that I'm trying to make, is Emuna and Yira go together. In other words, you know you sometimes know people who are, they love God, I'm in love with God, I feel God, I'm so spiritual, I'm so spiritual, I love God, God loves me, I love God, I love God. But what about some of the details of what God's asked of you, like Shabbos, kosher, this, that? I love God. God loves me. We have an understanding. We're good. No, the two things go together. Like, I can't say, like my wife, you know, I, Rabbi Weiss was here this past Shabbos and he told that story. It's my favorite story of his, right? About his father flying in. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's the great story. You had just told that story a few weeks ago. I told ago. the story uh, a few weeks ago. No, no, no. You just told that story. I, told recently, yes, I did tell it recently. told it within the last You're right. six weeks. Yeah, I did tell that story. It's the great story. Love me less and pick me pick up at the airport. Yes, yes, yes. Right? In fact, I tell it better than he does. It's his story. <laughs> but love me less and pick me up to the airport. So that's what got... That, right? So somebody, you say to your wife, you say to your husband, your, wife, you know, your husband says to you, gives you cards and love, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you, but then ignores you and is never home and really doesn't do the things that you care about. Then you say, do me a favor, love me a little less, buy me a few fewer flowers and less gushy cards, and just... Take do, just take out the guard, just be around, just do the things that, that we've talked about. So that's this third level. You can't claim to love God. You can't claim to have that amuna in God and then write him out of your life or not care of what he's asked of you 
or not recognize that there are consequences. They go hand in hand. So that's why the first step is, Wow, God created a path just when they thought they were closed in, just when they thought they were in the darkness, there was no light, the world was caving in on them, they couldn't escape just when they thought it was all over, they were so down and depressed and despondent and pessimistic and had given up all hope. The world was caving in. And God created a path. Kriyas Yamsuf. And Vayiruham, they realized, that's awesome. That is so beyond me. We are so small. We are tiny. We're so accountable. We are so submissive to God. Only then when they understood with a sense of, that's awesome. Yira. Now there's room for Amuna. Now there's room to walk with Hashem, to feel Hashem, to live with Hashem. Okay, we're on the bottom paragraph. Now we can start. <laughs> the belief that God exists, the Amuna, that He is there, makes the deepest impression that transforms our life. The difference between the life of an atheist and a believer is knowing that God exists. The Ramban, Nachmanides writes, his commentary in the Rambam's book of Mitzvahs, How do you acknowledge God's existence? This is the mitzvah that we have, which is to submit to God. Kabbalas o Malchushamayim. Our generation struggles with this tremendously because we live in a generation of personal autonomy. Because no one has authority. I do what I want. I do what pleases me. I do what makes me happy. And the one barometer, the one measure that we have to decide whether it's okay or not is, does it hurt anyone else? And as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, whatever makes me happy, obey your thirst, just do it, whatever makes you happy. Personal autonomy is the motto of our generation. Whatever makes me happy, whatever I want to do, whatever pleases me. So that all runs contrary to Kabbalah's Om HaShemayim. Kabbalah's Om HaShemayim is no tough guy. Your life is not yours. You're not entitled. You woke up this morning and your legs work, your eyes work, your ears work. You woke up and you're alive means not that you have rights and entitlements, but you have duties and obligations. What are you contributing to the world? Not what you're going to take from the world. Not how can you get more pleasure, how can you give more pleasure? which happens to be the best way of getting pleasure. But how can you live the most meaningful, fulfilling, satisfying life? Is not by being a taker, but by being a giver. And that requires Kabbalah's Om Shamayim To say to yourself, there is a creator to whom I am responsible and accountable and who has a mission for me in this world. And how will I make him proud? And how will I fulfill that mission and fulfill my purpose and thereby end up getting the greatest happiness? Not by personal autonomy and what makes me happy, but by submitting. Becholzos, it's a famous footnote that the Rav has in The Lonely Man of Faith. It's a famous footnote where he elaborates that it's very unpopular today. He says religious experience is submission. Right? For us, religious experience is a spirituality, sunset, a karabach minyan, feeling good, feeling uplifted, it's clapping and dancing and singing, it's meditating, it's yoga, it's, right? We, we think of religious experience and all these new age things because that's what's infiltrated our world. We think of it in the context of what makes me happy. I love yoga. I love meditating. I love singing. I love, I love, I love. That makes me, me, me feel good. That's religion. But that's not religion. At its core, Rabbi Soloveitchik writes philosophically in this famous footnote, at its core, religion is submission. 
And if you're unwilling to submit that there is a higher authority, there's a higher being, that there's a first cause, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want you to be happy. When, when the Rav says that religion is about submission, he does not mean, you know, it's about sacrifice and unhappiness and just serve. Adarab, it's the opposite. You know, the, there's a Pasuk in Tehillim. It's my favorite Pasuk in Tehillim. Um, and, and the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata, when his Mesilas Yisharim, expands on this Pasuk. And Ramchal writes, you know what the purpose of life is? These are his words. Lehis aneg al Hashem. What does the word oneg mean? Enjoy. It's pleasure. He says the purpose of life is to get high, to get high on God. Lehis aneg, to get pleasure. In other words, God did not create us to suffer and sacrifice and submit. He created us to get great pleasure. He's the most benevolent, altruistic being. He got nothing out of His creating us. Why did He create us? For us, to get the greatest pleasure. It happens to be, how do we get the greatest pleasure? Lehisaneg, to get high, not in a counterfeit, fleeting way, but to get high in the most authentic way, on God. To get high by realizing that there's that which is greater than us. To get high by thinking of ourselves as small, not as big. To get high by thinking of ourselves as givers, not as takers. To get high to think of ourselves as having a unique mission to transform the world, not as being insignificant and invisible. That's how we get high. So the reason God asks us for submission, the reason religion asks us to obey and to observe, is not so that we forfeit our happiness, but it's the actual highest way we can achieve it. It's the greatest way to have happiness. You know how you can have happiness? Shabbos. In this world of chaos and noise, in this world of addiction and connection, we have Shabbos. Dr. Ruth spoke a few weeks ago. I won't do my imitation. But the gift of Shabbos. How fortunate, how fortunate we are to have the gift of Shabbos. The quiet and the space and the communication of Shabbos, right? When I asked her, what, is the, what would you say is the greatest component of love and marriage, what do you need? And she said, you need to disconnect. And then she said, you're all so lucky and blessed, you have Shabbos. She has Shabbos. We have Shabbos. Shabbos is not punitive. Ask a kid, they'll say it's punitive. It's restrictive. I can't go here, I can't go here, I can't do this, I can't do this, you're trying to torture me. Let them get a little older, and we sometimes need to mature and realize that it's not restrictive and it's punitive. It is the most liberating thing in the world. It is so liberating. It's unbelievable. I was just having a conversation with someone this week who is so inspiring to me. They've changed their life. A young family in our community who in the last couple of years alone has switched their kids to day school and has moved on to the circle and has taken on greater observance and had to downsize the quality of their life physically, materially, in order to achieve that. And I said, you know, what's it like? How do, you, how do your kids feel? Is it harder because you're in a smaller house and you're in this... He said, are you kidding me? Shabbos comes and I don't see my children. They are out and they're friends. And when their Shabbos meals, we're finally talking to each other because those stupid phones are away. And when Shabbos afternoon, they are running around and they're actually experiencing friendships rather than just texting or FaceTiming or Snapchatting or taking selfies of themselves all week long. He's like, this is the greatest thing. Who cares about the smaller house? And that's, so we think it's restrictive and punitive and it, it restrains us and it punishes us. It's the opposite. It is so liberating. That's why Shabbos is Zechir Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Shabbos commemorates freedom and liberty because it liberates us and frees us from the to-do list of the week and the obligations of the week and the noise of the week and the connection of the week and all of that, 
all of that which, uh, which takes us out of our life. So the purpose of life is lehisaneg al Hashem. The purpose of life is to get high, is to feel pleasure. It happens to be that the way you feel pleasure is to submit. It happens to be that our generation struggles with submission because we believe in autonomy. God, you can't tell me how to feel pleasure. I tell me how to feel pleasure. And I feel pleasure by this, that, the other thing, all these new things in, in the world. So don't tell me how to feel pleasure. I decide how to feel pleasure. How's that working for the world? Everyone trying to feel pleasure on their own. Well, there's more antidepressants being sold than ever. There's more anxiety than ever. There's more divorce than ever. There's more infidelity than ever. There's more drug abuse than ever. There's more alcoholism than ever. It doesn't look like the experiment of personal autonomy is going so well. If God designed us and designed the world, He might have a little inclination as to how we can get the most pleasure. And maybe we should just trust Him and try it out. So, at the core, says the Ramban, of this mitzvah of Emuna is Kabbalah's Omach Hushemayim. At its core is submission. Maybe for next week, or two weeks from now, I'll uh, copy that footnote from the Rav. We'll take a look at it. That religious man, religion is about submission. Again, submission so that you get the highest pleasure. It's not submission so that you sacrifice and suffer. It's submission so that you get the highest, so that you get the highest form of, you get the highest form of pleasure. That's a challenge for us. Kabbalah's ol machushamayim. To say, you know what? Life's not about what I want to do right now. It's what's God's expectation of me. And how am I accountable for how I respond and how I react to that expectation? So we did get to the end of the first side. We'll continue. We'll continue on the second side. All means the yoke. The acceptance of the yoke of heaven. I don't like to use that word because it's so negative. And it's not negative. It's It's positive. It just has to really be understood, understood fully. All right, have a great uh, day and a great two weeks. We'll resume Amuna in two weeks.